Well, it's uh, wonderful to be back with you. My family and I missed you greatly, and uh, we're thankful that uh, we had time away as a family and were able to see some amazing things. A couple observations from the West. Number one, uh, we live in a very flat place, and it's kind of boring here compared to some of the amazing things at Yellowstone National Park that we got to see. Um, Secondly, we sound different here. And we were told that as we talked to different people, like, why do you sound so funny? And, like, why do you sound so funny? Um, But we had a wonderful time of rest, and we missed you greatly. And I'm thankful to be able to be back with you today. We're going to finish up Chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. Um, I had uh, Adam Reed, have Ben Reed, of Romans Chapter 14 for a purpose and a reason today, which I will get to in just a minute. Um, It's a parallel passage to uh, what we've been studying through 1 Corinthians. It uh, talks about uh, Christian liberty, and it will be very helpful for us. So you might want to hold your place there in Romans chapter 14. Uh, We will look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the last uh, verses 23 down to the end of the chapter. And just as a reminder, as a refresh... Uh, We are and have been dealing with Christian liberty. Christian liberty is the freedom that we have in Christ, uh, that we have uh, been bought out of uh, bondage and slavery, and therefore we have freedom. And that freedom, um, as we have stated throughout this study, as I have tried to make clear, it's not unrestrained freedom. It's a freedom under the submission and the authority and the guidance and the leadership of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul wants to make that very clear for the people in Corinth because they are waving the flag of Christian liberty, but they are doing so in an unloving way. They are doing so in a way that has led them down the path of idolatry. And he is trying to correct... um, He is trying to correct their behavior as they um, live among the world and among lost people. So this is very applicable to us as well as the church for us to understand what it means for us to express and enjoy our Christian liberty. We can enjoy the liberty that we have in Christ because He clearly has made us free. And we are free in Him to live holy lives, to live lives that honor and glorify Him. And He has given us His Word to guide us and direct us accordingly. But what we will see in our passage today is that the Bible, although it is sufficient in every way, it is not specific in dealing with every single scenario and category that we will ever face in our lives. There are principles and there are truths, but ultimately what Christianity comes down to is following God's Word and using the Word of God to help us discern decisions and things of our lives where the Bible may not speak specifically. And therefore, we see as the Corinthians dealt with it, and so we will deal with it as well, we get to these situations in our lives where we say, well, what does, what does God want me to do here? How should I live and behave and act? And I can't find something in Scripture in regards to this. And so what we're going to think about is today is, well, you are free in Christ and you have this liberty, 
But your freedom is restrained. It is under the subjection and the authority of God. So your freedom isn't to do whatever you want to do. It is a freedom of what does Christ want us to do? How does He want us to live? And what has He done to exemplify that? So you can imagine that Christian liberty is very much abused in our culture. Well, Christ has saved me. I'm free from my sin, so I can talk the way that I want. I can eat the things that I want. I can drink the things that I want. I can do whatever I want to do because Christ has saved me. I'm free in Christ. But the problem is, as we will see, is that's a poor view of Christian liberty. And so from this passage, I want us to help uh, to be helpful and look at a few principles that may guide us in making decisions with this liberty that Christ has given us. I'm going to read this passage because we didn't read it. It's uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Let me read this for us. Verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. For the, Lord, for the earth is the Lord's and all that it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this meat is sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who has informed you and for conscience sake. I mean, not your conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jew or to Greek or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. Now, if you remember, Paul's dealing in chapters 8 through 10 with two main issues of Christian liberty. Number one, he's dealing with the issue of Christians being concerned about eating meat that was offered to idols. We've gone over this. It's been a month, more than a few months now that we've looked at these chapters. And those, that meat offered to idols was, was meat that was once offered to idols, sacrificed upon pagan altars and two pagan deities. That meat is then consumed partly by some of the priests in that pagan religion. The remaining meat that was left was taken to the market and sold to the common man. Okay? Paul will deal with and has dealt with that issue of meat. There was a a connection that the people believed was a part of that meat. There was a, an essence of the gods that were a part of that meat connected to it. And therefore, weak Christians were concerned about eating such meat, thinking that they were consuming pagan deities, or they were somehow connected to that. Second issue that they dealt with was the social aspect of the Corinthian community. A lot of the pagan rituals and feasts were a social gathering. And that social gathering meant that you were going to go hang out in a a club of people or a group of people, and in doing so, you were going to feast together at a banquet. 
But that feast was not just a social gathering that was amoral. It was immoral because it was connected to religious pagan sacrifices. And so the Corinthians, again, well, I have freedom in Christ. We're Christians. Christ has died and saved us. I'm not going to be affected by going to a pagan temple, having a pagan feast with other unbelievers who I used to worship with in that pagan feast because Christ is protecting me. He's saving me. I have no fear or reason to be afraid. Well, that's partially true. Except for the fact that those who would see you at that feast would in themselves be tempted and confused and they would, in, in, in the essence and the act of it, would defame the name of Christ. Why? Because you weren't just eating at a feast, uh, people. You weren't just having a meal. You are participating in a former way of life, a life that you may have had or they may have had prior to their salvation in Christ. Okay? So those are the two main issues. Paul has dealt with both of these. He returns back to, as he summarizes this chapter in these verses, he returns back to meat offered to idols in the marketplace. And so that's kind of where he's going to wrap things up here, just to kind of reiterate his points and reaffirm for us these principles. Principle number one, exercising liberty in Christ is good as long as it is helpful. As long as it is helpful. Verses 23, in verse 23, he does what he did in chapter uh, 6, where he quotes the phraseology or the terminology of the Corinthians. Their phrasing was, well, hey, all things are lawful for me. All things are lawful. I can do whatever I want because I have freedom in Christ. He did that in regards to their bodies and sexual immorality, where they again wanted to exploit their freedom and say, hey, I'm in free in Christ. I can do what I want. So he's quoting them in verse 23. All are lawful. You could actually put those in quotes. He does it again. All are lawful. He does it twice. And what does he do? Secondly, he adds his commentary. And what is his commentary? All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. The word there, helpful, means something that is advantageous. Something that is beneficial. Beneficial to you, your actions, in your Christian freedom, may not always be helpful for you. In the same way, your actions may not be helpful or beneficial to others. And that's the crux of this message in these chapters is that what we do in our freedom in Christ does not just affect us, it affects the people around us. And we need to be conscious and aware of such things. So how does a Christian know what is helpful for them? How do we know what is beneficial for us as individuals and as the church? Well, first we must consider that our Christian freedom allows us freedom as long as the Word of God does not forbid something for us to do. Or some principle forbids us of doing such a thing. Therefore, the first determination of something that would be helpful is what does the all-sufficient, inerrant, never-changing Word of God teach about this? 
That's what guides our directed steps in this world. You are free as long as you are free in the bounds of the Word of God. Charles Spurgeon in, gave an illustration years ago, and he was talking about it in a different situation, but it applies here, that we have freedom in the same way that if you get on a cruise ship and you walk around a cruise ship, you feel as if you are free. You can go to the salad bar and the, the meat bar and the, the, the drink bar and, and the water slides and the tennis courts, and you have the freedom all to do whatever you want during the, the, the stay upon this vessel. But your freedom is limited and it is skewed. One, because you have no determination of where that ship is going. You have no directive or, or authority or even power to change the direction of such a course. And so even when you feel as if you have freedom, your freedom is really skewed and it's definitely limited. Well, we have freedom in Christ. But we must understand that our freedom is limited to what God has called us to do. Outside of that, we must avoid it. Outside of God's Word, we must repent of it if we have fallen into such things. But as I said, in determining what is helpful, oftentimes the Word of God does not specifically say you can eat these things as a New Testament believer. You can drink these things as a New Testament believer. You can go to these places and not these places. We have to have discernment. And where does discernment come from? Well, the Word of God teaches us by the Spirit of God. But what if, if it doesn't speak of such a thing? God has given us the conscience. He's given us our conscience. Our conscience is this moral thermometer built within humans so that we might consider what is good and bad for us. It reads and understands and informs us as people. A Puritan Samuel Ansley states that the conscience is this, quote, a kind of silent reasoning of the mind whose definitive sentence is received by some affection of the heart, whereby those things which are judged to be good and right are approved of with delight, but those which are evil and not are disapproved with grief and sorrow. God hath placed this in all men, partly to be a judgment and a testimony of that integrity to which man was first created and of that corruption that followed through sin. Partly that God may have a tribunal erected in the breasts of men to accuse delinquents and to excuse those that do good or to do what is good and right. See, the truth is, all of creation that God made, He gave a conscience to humanity. He didn't give a conscience to our pet friends, to the deers that frolic in the, in the meadow, to the birds that fly in the air. We can have that debate later if you think that your pets and animals have a conscience. It's all learned behavior. But in God's image, as humanity, we are created in that image, and therefore God has given us, as many people call this alarm system of the mind and heart, that alerts us to things that are good or evil, and all people in all the world have a conscience. 
Why? So that we may understand what God deems as helpful and necessary for us. So that we might understand what is evil and where we should turn away. For example, we understand that murder is wrong without ever reading the law of God that says that murder is wrong. It's innate in us. It's built in with our fabric of our DNA because God has created it that way. Look at Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2 verses 14 through 16. Paul is making this case about the depth of sin and the depravity of man. And he says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves. Why? In that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternatively accusing or else defending them on the day when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. This is a profound statement about how we as Christians can understand the conscience and the role of the conscience, not just in our lives, but in all of humanity. So that people understand what is right and wrong based upon the way in which God made them. They, he gave them a conscience. And He has written upon that conscience the, the truth of God, the, the unwritten law of God, so that they may know without ever reading, not in totality, right? Not in totality. They're not automatically conscious of Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. But they have these truths written upon their hearts so that they may know and understand the good of goodness and the evil of evil. So much so that in chapter 2 of Romans, verse 16 they will be held accountable to their conscience. That is the power of the conscience in all of us that helps us as people do things and understand that which is helpful. God will judge those because they have ignored their conscience. They have ignored those things as warning system that is sounding off and showing them the sin of their lives. And they hit the snooze button and they progress forward, ignoring such a thing, falling deeper and deeper into immorality. And as believers in Christ, we would say that our conscience is supercharged. It's supercharged because it is informed by the written word of God and works in conjunction with the spirit of God at work in us as believers. This is all pertinent because Paul will use the word conscience four different times in our passage today as an, as an activity, as an action of helpfulness in discussing and evaluating Christian liberty. This is why I had Adam read Romans chapter 14. Because in Romans chapter 14, Paul makes something very clear about our conscience in relationship to Christian liberty. If you have your place there, go back to Romans 14. Look at chapter 14, verse 14. 
Paul says, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Now, Paul's talking about the weak brother in Christ. The one who, through the process of sanctification, is having his conscience informed more and more by the Word of God. So that as you grow in Christ, your conscience actually helps your understanding of Christian liberty grow and expand. But when you are in immaturity in Christ, you are still very sensitive. And Paul is talking about people, weak Christians, immature Christians, new Christians, who are still struggling with the issue of food like we've looked at in 1 Corinthians chapter 8-10 through and in Romans chapter 14. And what he's telling us about the power of the conscience is, he says, if you think that something is sinful and you ignore your conscience and you partake of that thing, to you and before the Lord, it is sin. Now, why would he do that? Because he's trying to teach us how to listen to the, the, the important function of the conscience in our mind, not to diminish it and go, ah, just ignore that thing. You're in Christ. You have freedom. No, he's saying your conscience is the very function in your life to do good. It will help you. It will alert you. But if you ignore such a thing, then you might as well just throw it away and ignore it completely. But no, instead, he wants us to see the power of the conscience in the life of the believer, just as Paul wanted us to see the power of the conscience in the life of the unbeliever in Romans chapter 2. So much so they will be judged by their conscience. Well, if they're judged by their conscience as unbelievers, we better listen to what the conscience teaches us if we are going to understand how to live and choose things that are helpful for us. Paul warns Timothy in talking about those who have fallen away from the faith in 1 Timothy chapter 4. He says, pay attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars who have seared their own conscience. That's a powerful illustration. Last week, the 4th of July, I was holding a firework in my hand. I was holding the wick. The wick burned my fingers. And for a week, my fingers are numb. They are seared. There is no feeling in them. That illustration shows us that when we ignore the promptings of the Holy Spirit, And the promptings of the Word of God that have been fixed upon our conscience, we can sear such a conscience so that it is no longer as loud as it was before. And therefore, we are no longer listening to and discerning the things that we need to discern. Paul tells Timothy that these hypocrites have seared their conscience like a branding iron. This is a danger for us. A stunning visual aid to show us how much our consciences can lose sensitivity. 
So we are growing in Christ. And we are growing to understand, as Paul says, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. Not all things are helpful. How can I know, pastor, what is helpful? Number one, what does the Word of God say? Number two, what is your conscience informing you of? How is it directing you and guiding you? Folks, we're not just talking about common sense. We're talking about listening to the functionality that God has placed in your life to help you and guide you to do good and not evil. This is a powerful function in, within you that God has given you. Do not ignore your conscience. If those alarms are going off, they are going off to show you that what you want to do is or is not helpful. Secondly, Paul says, if we are going to exercise our Christian liberty, that exercising of Christian liberty is good as long as it edifies others. Verse 23, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Folks, the truth is this passage is, is that as we are trying to live in these principles in our freedom, we must understand that our conscience should not only get our attention, that conscience that's informed by the Word of God and by the Spirit, but our concern and our love for other people must also get our attention. Because the world around us equally has a conscience that is guiding them, most importantly in the church. And those who are weak and immature, their consciences can be offended. And we can't go around going, well, I ain't concerned about what they're thinking about. I just got to think about what I'm trying to do and how I'm trying to honor the Lord. Except that's the exact opposite of a reflection of Christ's love for us. Is that we are literally called to seek the good of others. Paul says... In verse chapter 8, verse 10, very similarly, For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? It's kind of a weird phrase that Paul, kind of weird wording, but Paul, what he's trying to say is, is that as we are concerned not only about our own conscience, but about the actions and, and concerns of other people, here you have a scenario where you're out dining at an idol's temple and you see a weak brother who looks at you and sees you doing that. What's going to happen to them? Not only are their consciences going to be offended, but Paul says they are going to be strengthened to eat things offered to idols. In other words, practice idolatry. In other words, you will be causing them to stumble into sin because you have failed to consider a love for others. And love for your neighbor. So we must envelop our Christian liberty with a love for other people. We must envelop our Christian liberty to have a concern for our brothers in their weakness. I have a good friend who hates alcohol. He abstains from alcohol. His dad was an alcoholic who died of complications from diseases related to alcoholism. 
So alcohol is a difficult topic for him. Drinking alcohol is not an issue that the Bible calls sinful. Drunkenness is the issue. But out of love for a brother who has such a struggle, it would be wrong for me to flaunt my Christian liberty and say, hey brother, I'm free in Christ. I can drink alcohol all the day long as long as I'm not drunk. But instead, I should consider his love and as Paul said, abstain. Why? Well, Paul says, if, my, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again. What's he saying? Seek the love and the concern and the care of those who are struggling. And in doing so, if you have to abstain in order to display love to them, then by all means do so. Paul gives two examples of how we can edify. Two examples in the Corinthian context of edification. Some direction that he gives us in verses 25 and 26. Again, revisiting scenarios that I think Paul feels he must explain. Number one, he talks about a private shopping experience in verses 25 and 26. Again, he just says, look, eat anything that's sold in the meat market without asking question for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. Again, this represents the freedom. Paul says, go to the market. Buy meat. And when you go to the market and you buy meat, you have freedom to eat that meat without concern. But he says, do it without investigating or without asking questions for conscience sake. Because ultimately what you have is a principle in Psalm 24. Adam had, read, had us read this earlier. That the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. Therefore enjoy what God has made. This meat He has provided, enjoy it. Do not let your conscience be offended by such a thing because God has provided these things to you. The second scenario is a social dinner with friends. In verses 27 through 30, he says, If an unbeliever invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. Now it's a separate scenario. You go to a friend's house. They're unbelievers. You're a Christian. They set something before you. Again, you don't want to get mixed up into the whole, is this from an idol? Is this not from an idol? You simply eat what's put in front of you. As Paul says, without asking questions for conscience' sake. But, he says, but if the person says to you, hey, that meat is offered to idols, he says, don't eat it. Now, why would he say that? He just told you it's fine to eat the meat. Why would he now go back on his statement and tell you that you can't eat the meat anymore? Look at what he says. This is his example. Do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. I don't mean your conscience, but the other man's. So now Paul is saying again, hey, you have freedom, but that freedom is limited by what? A love for other people. In this scenario, it's actually the love for unbelievers. Now think about it. You're at a dinner party. The unbeliever, the host particularly, has invited you over. He puts a meal before you and he tells you, 
hey, friend, I just want you to know, I know you're a Christian. I know these beliefs that you have. And I want you to know that this meat was offered to idol. I don't want it to be a problem for you. Now, because the very acknowledgement that that friend offered, you don't eat the meat so that you do not offend the unbeliever. Why would he be offended? Because it might lead to confusion. You're not going to go into a long discourse or sermonette about Christian liberty and the freedoms that you have in Christ. If he brings to your attention the issue that this meat was offered to idol, to idols, then your responsibility is to seek the love of your friend and not eat it so that no consciences are seared. Paul's point is simply to consider others more important than yourself. Abstain if it's a sense of offending other people because they have been alerted, even though they may not believe it, they have been alerted to a right and wrong situation. And therefore, you should abstain. These are practices and principles that Paul is helping us understand as we live in this world. You can understand in situations culturally, with Christians across the world, things that are going to be very offensive to them. They're going to rub against their culture. They're going to rub against their religion. And the point is, is that you don't go and boastly say, hey, I have liberty in Christ. I can do what I want. I can eat what I want and not consider the love of others. Which leads us to principle number three. If we practice our liberty without love, we are ceasing to glorify God. Because exercising liberty in Christ is good as long as it glorifies God. And so Paul gives us probably one of my favorite verses of the Bible. Whether then whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, not do all for the glory of yourself, not do all for what's convenient for the moment, do all for the glory of God. The Corinthians were operating in such a way they were not glorifying God in regards to meat offered to idols. They were arrogant, if you'll remember. They were boastful. They were not loving their neighbor. Those in the church, they were obviously being a bad, having a bad testimony and a bad witness to those outside the church by being seen at these pagan feasts. And so they weren't, they weren't glorifying the Lord with their actions. Seeking to glorify the Lord is seeking to show the love that the Lord has shown us. So therefore, we must understand that if we are to live in this world in such a way that all our actions are focused on bringing God glory, then we need to focus on a couple, couple things. Number one, we need to bring God glory by enjoying the blessings of redemption through Jesus Christ. Enjoy your freedom. Freedom is not a stifling thing. It's not an oppressive thing. It's a, it's a liberating thing. Celebrate the benefits that Christ has made you free. Live and, and, and receive them and enjoy them without restraint because sin no longer restrains you. Because of the work of Jesus Christ upon the cross, His death and His resurrection, you have been freed and so therefore don't put yourself back in bondage. This is the problem of legalism. On one side, you have Christian libertarians who want to do whatever they want to do without being restrained by anything. 
And on the other end, on the other side, you have legalists. And in legalism, you have people that say, well, we're in Christ, but we've got to do all these different things to make the Lord happy with us. And that too is wrong. We must enjoy the things that Christ has done for us. Reflect upon and find great comfort and peace and joy in what He has accomplished. But we must also bring God glory by loving our neighbors. Considering how we might serve them. Considering how we might look to and understand their weaknesses so that we might not give offense. Understanding that we're all in different places and points of our spiritual lives and therefore in a body of Christians like this, there are always going to be more mature and more immature believers. But in these moments, we are constantly living to dispense grace and mercy toward those in the church. Especially when we are offended. Especially when there is a spiritual maturity that leads to liberties in Christ that we've been given. We must dispense grace and mercy when we practice such liberties or when we offend and we want to receive grace and mercy from those we have offended. That's why Paul says again in Romans 14, pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down, he says, the work of God for the sake of food. Why would we allow these things to divide us? Instead, seek to love one another. And finally, we bring God glory when we do these things for the sake of God's mission. I love how Paul concludes this chapter. He's already said these things before, but he says, whatever you eat or whatever you drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jew or the Greek or to the church of God. In other words, love your neighbor. Just as he says, I also please all men and all things, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of many so that they may be what? They may be saved. The way that we glorify the Lord in the way we live and act in holiness in this world, considering others more important than ourselves, loving our neighbors, even in our Christian freedom, the point is is that we will have such a witness and an impact as we live in such a way that we don't want to be a stumbling block to people as we try to share Christ with them. The mission of God, the evangelizing of this world, the making of disciples should be our primary goal and purpose. That's why Paul said in chapter 9, Though I am free from all men, I made myself a slave to do what? Win more people. Chapter 9 again, I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow fellow partaker of it. So church, we live with liberty and we are free and our freedom affords us to show love. And our freedom affords us to show and reflect holiness. And the glory of the Lord. Why? So that the world may see that we are different. That we stand out. That we are willing to sacrifice and lay down things that we have freedom to do in order to show love and grace to other people. Not hold fast to our rights and our privileges, but instead 
extend the arm of the arm of love and grace to others so that we might reflect the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he has done for us. We want the world to see what a transformed life in Christ looks like. We do that by two things, how we live and what we teach them. That's what we're called to do. Let's do it. Father, we pray that in your grace and mercy, we would be so